concentrating on some of the main features, the focal points which the Baal Shem HaKadosh brought back into focus as he attempted to restore the vitality of the um, the inner richness of Jewish life. There are certainly some definitions to which the uh, Baal Shem Tov added a um, an amplification. For example, the the concept of providence, the concept of hashgacha protis, that there is a um, a divine attention, a divine interest and concern, um, a uh, a monitoring of of uh, everyone's life in such a way that the Almighty is an active participant, companion, uh, and um, and supervisor, as it were, of of uh, or orchestrator of sorts of every single Jewish life man, woman, child uh, the Almighty was uh, quintessentially and exquisitely involved in every moment of the life of every person there was no such thing as as a single instant of, uh, a second in which the Almighty's interest was distracted or waned um, the um, the concept of divine providence is one which uh, is a long-standing tenet of uh, Jewish faith and we've we've, we talked about it in in the 13 principles but the Baal Shem Tov brought uh, an intensity to that concept which um, which was really unparalleled the Baal Shem Tov insisted that Hashgacha Pratis that divine providence was so extensive so exhaustive so precise so thorough that there was no such thing which escaped the divine providence not only from the sense that God was aware of it but that everything was uh, ordained from above with the single exclusion or exception of human choice, moral choice every challenge in life every test, every blessing every good fortune, every misfortune was custom tailored it was exactly what an individual needed to confront to overcome to to uh, to deal with uh, to integrate in order for them to achieve their maximal spiritual maturity and uh, and shlemus and completion Baal Shem Tov in his um, exposition of this facet of divine providence said 
that if there is a blade of grass in a valley which has never been visited by any human being, and that blade of grass moves back and forth in the wind and the breeze, um, however many times from the beginning of the time that it first pushed through the soil until such time as it withered, that every movement of that blade of grass was ordained by heaven. Now, it's, it's very important for us to understand that, that while it may seem to us that that occupies the infinite with some, some very meaningless information, that, the, that one of the, the problems that we have with that, as we discussed during the, uh, that particular principle that, that dealt with this in the 13 Principles of Faith, is that we, def- that we define God as um, an extension of our own experience. That we really, we really deal with God anthropomorphically. And that what we do is that we make God a very powerful human being. Consequently, our experience is, is that um, it's, uh, it's very, very difficult for a person to deal with one, more than one thing at once, at least to concentrate on more than one thing at once. So we will say that God can't concentrate on many things at once. But somehow, that the Almighty should concentrate on billions and billions of things simultaneously seems to us to be something which staggers our imagination every instant and moment of the day and that is and that's only so because of the fact that we're that we uh, we have put our own human face on God the almighty is infinite and infinity has no limitations it is just as effortless uh, on the part of the Almighty to attend to every single movement that takes place with every molecule in the universe as it would be for him to deal with the greatest planet or the greatest star that occupies the the uh, cosmos. Um, and that somehow, that in much the same way that when you sit in the... in, in uh, listening to a, a, a great symphony, and there are, there are many contributions of tiny little instruments which take place um, at, at different points throughout the the, uh, the symphony, which uh, we aren't even aware are happening. That there's a, that there's someone sitting in the back of the orchestra who uh, every ten minutes happens to hit a cymbal, and we don't hear it. But the fact is that the collective beauty, that the that the, the the full experience of the symphony is dependent upon the fact that that particular note is hit even once during the course of the entire performance. That there there is there is a plan, and that 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 nothing is created with no good reason, and that everything which is has some sort of a significance as it fits into the total picture. And that the Almighty sometimes will cause a great wind to blow for no 
reason other than within that total symphony, it's important that at that moment that a leave which occupies a certain space on this side of the path should be blown over to the other side of the path. And while we have no idea why it's important for that note to be played in the symphony of the universe or history, but the Almighty in His infinite understanding understands how everything fits in and that every movement which takes place does not take place capriciously or by happenstance. Now, um, now that didn't leave. That was my clumsiness. Um, Having said that, uh, we have, by extension, to understand that there's nothing which happens to a human being. If we're talking about um, a straw in the wind, a a leaf, um, a blade of grass, then how much more so the experience of a human being? Now the Gemara tells us, our sages tell us, that if a person puts his hand into his, uh, his arm into his jacket and, and doesn't hit the sleeve right away and has to do it once or twice before he gets it, or if a person puts his hand into his pocket to pull out a, a quarter and gets a dime instead, that that's not an accident. And that that too has a significance in which the Almighty is, is doing something. Um, that um, that has numerous consequences. Number one, um, when we look at what happens to us as human beings, it impresses upon us the importance more frequently to ask ourselves, what's the message? Now, we can't always know what the message is, but we have an obligation to ask ourselves what is the message, because if we if we look at what's transpiring, it may very well be that where we fail to see things before, that we will begin to perceive that um, that perhaps the Almighty is summoning us to pay attention to. Um, to one or another aspect of our spirituality. Um, the Gidele uh, HaChasidus, the luminaries of Hasidus would find in all kinds of uh, things which crossed their path, um, little overtures, gestures on the part of the Almighty to try to awaken them to their own spiritual needs and um, and their own spiritual destiny. Uh, there's a famous story of, uh, I believe it was with Moshe Leib of Sasev, who was walking with his Hasidim in the marketplace, and uh, he was, a, he was a, a very tall and, and, and strong-looking um, individual, and uh, some of the, uh, the, the uh, peasants, the non-Jewish peasants in the marketplace were busy loading a wagon with some fairly heavy cargo and they were having a difficult time and as soon as they saw him they 
they called him over and they said to him, hey, come here and help us, help us load the wagon. So he said to them, uh, I'm sorry, I, I can't do it. To which the, uh, this, this um, peasant responded with uh, somewhat angrily, said to him, it's not true. You can, you just don't want to. At which point, the Meshulev turned around to his chassidim, he said, did you hear what he said? He said, you can, but you just don't want to. He said, how many times do we say to ourselves when, it, when there's some sort of a spiritual challenge or some sort of an emotional confrontation, I can't do it. I, have this, I, I, I can't keep the Torah this, this, I can't be this observant, I can't be this exacting. Or I, I can't, I can't be this patient with with uh, with my friend, or I can't be this uh, this generous with uh, with this poor person. And he says that this this was a little reminder from above that it's not that we can't, it's that we don't we choose not to. Um, the individual who understands. The fact that nothing in the life of a human being is accidental is an individual who is capable of experiencing the kind of joy which is so central to chassidus. As uh, you may remember in our first session, I spoke about the fact that one of the cornerstones of, of chassidus and one of the things that that the uh, Baal Shem HaKadosh sought to restore in in, in, in um, in Jewish life, which, which at, in, in, at his point in history was uh, was so um, so tragically sad in every in every which way, was the the joy of living, and the joy of living was in large measure a product of the fact that every individual knew that he was in the constant presence and companionship of the Master of the Universe, Mizmer LeDavid the 23rd Psalm Hashem Rei Lo the Almighty is my shepherd I shall not want and in Chasidus that was understood to mean as long as Hashem is my shepherd I'm not I'm never missing anything everything is exactly as it should be everything is is exactly as as the Almighty understands at this point in my life it should it should be I am the wealthiest individual in the world because I am missing nothing. There is nothing which I am in need of. All the things that I need are right now in my possession. Um, that includes not only the good, but it also includes those trials and tribulations. That there is nothing which is meaningless. And that there is a compassionate, loving Father Whose, uh, whose complete interest and concern with, with each individual allows each individual to say, um, if this were not absolutely necessary in my life, then it would not be. And if the Almighty understands in His infinite wisdom that this is something with, with, with which I must struggle, then with His strength and His companionship, and his trust in me, I can, 
I can best this this struggle. I can overcome it. I can um, transcend it. So in large measure, the simcha, the joy of Hasidus was a product of the Hashgacha Protis, the fact that everyone understood that uh, the Almighty considered them a ben yachid, an only child. Almighty's the Almighty's love for each person was, as the Baal Shem put it, uh, like elderly parents who wait their whole lives to have one child. And one can only imagine how precious this this one and only child who they were finally blessed to have in their old, old age, how precious this child. And, and, and the Baal Shem told, taught every Jew is an, is an only child. We've um, we've also touched upon, and I'd like to amplify just a little bit over here, the fact that as an extension of of this hashgacha protis, and as an extension of um, the uh, definition of each person as the bearer of something godly, such that each person was one of the Almighty's children, that Hasidus made it a um, a cardinal precept. One of the, the pillars of Hasidus was the love which was obligatory uh, between every Jew. Uh, between the simplest of people and the greatest scholars. That there dare not be any condescension. That there dare not be any kind of a, what do they call it in, in, uh, in India? Caste? Caste? Yes caste system um, uh, that that every Jew merited the total affirmation and respect and love of every other Jew this um, uh, this Ahavas Yisrael this, this um, um, precept of Ahavas Yisrael was something which Hasidus addressed in a variety of different ways. Hasidus addressed it by creating a sense of family. It insisted upon um, the Hasidim becoming um, devoted to one another, that they would confide in one another, that they would take counsel with one another, that they would relate not only their uh, their physical or their 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 monetary or their uh, their day-to-day problems and concerns, so that uh, that that one could, could be supportive of the next, that one might might encourage the next, that one might uh, m- uh, might offer some uh, whether it, it it was some assistance or. Uh, or just simply the uh, the uh, the empathy which was um, necessary, but that spiritually that people would take counsel with um, their their friends, that they would trust one another with their perception of all of the things about themselves their character, their conduct, with which or of which they were critical. 
they would tell one another, another of their inability to handle whether it was anger or whether it was envy or whether it was um, it was um, miserliness or it was uh, the pursuit of pleasure um, the the issue of Echevra, the issue of, of a group of people who are completely devoted to one another so that they didn't need to conceal from one another but that they could share and they could grow from each other was probably one of the, the, the first manifestations and, and, and a, a manifestation yet to be paralleled of uh, a kind of a group therapy experience where people got together and they were able to, to encourage one another and to, and to motivate one another in a in a healing way, if asin um establish for yourself a um, a, 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 a leader, a, a rebbe, um, a master, was the um, was something which directed the the uh, focus of the chassidim on and the um, the tzaddik. The second ingredient, acquire for yourself a good friend, was uh, no less of a of a an emphasis, no less of a virtue in the teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. And um, and so between um, his Hasidim amongst the, the the scholar the the scholars amongst them with one another. Um, or uh, the pshuteyam, the the simple folk, um, with one another, or as uh, they related to um, to the talmidei chachamim, and vice versa. There was a um, there was a new infusion of caring and strength, which began to mend all of these divisions, which the former system of um, the of, of scholarship had um, introduced uh, such distance and divisiveness and now the um, the Hasidic community um, brought together in, 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 a, in, a, in a fusion of, of, of oneness in unity and Ahdus the um, uh, those who uh, who sought the uh, the teaching of the Rebbe and the the strength of the Hasidim. Symptomatic of um, of the many ways in which this was manifest, and it was manifest through their as, as we already spoken about the the mutual support that they provided for one another, and the and and, and the the counsel and the and the criticism. Which they invited in this uh, in this context was um, the Hasidic emphasis on song and dance. Um, the um, we've uh, we've spoken about the fact that whereas up until the time of the Baal Shem Tov that there was this this growing exaggeration of intellectual uh, achievement 
which which left the uh, the the masses by and large in in uh, in a in a very inferior position that the Baal Shem Tov was was able to reinfuse the significance of the the rich emotional content of the service of the Almighty, and as such, the um, expression of uh, of yearning and longing and joy um, found its way into into song because uh, song allows for um, a, a way of transcending words of transcending barriers and uh, and in the uh, in the in voices joining together there was a a unity and an achdus which was which was very tangible here everybody came together in a way in which there were no divisions and it was an expression of the collective neshama, the collective soul, the collective excitement, the collective yearning of the entire community, which, uh, as much as everybody contributed to it, they were also the beneficiaries of the sounds that they produced, because when it returned to them, it returned to them, amplified and intensified by the... Um, the shared emotions of everyone else. And to some extent, that was also true of the rikudim, of the significance of dancing. Um, the dance provided for uh, an opportunity for everyone to join hands and to create a circle. Um, the... Um, The paradigm there being that uh, that everyone in a circle is equidistant from the center. There's no there's no um, better. There's no closer. There's no higher. There's no lower. Everyone in the circle is joined in uh, in creating a um, uh, as it were a common family with without any. Um, Without any divisions and without any um, uh, any levels of um, of better and lesser, uh, it may very well be that uh, that just as the the rikudim were a way of everybody joining hands to uh, to come together in um, in an experience of movement. That um, that the song was a, a sort of a of a of a verbal rikud. It was a, it was a verbal dance. Everybody joined together um, to um, to have their voices dance together. Amongst Hasidim, they also said that a rikud, that dancing, in as much as uh, it, what, what's involved in the dance is. is, is Rather than, un unlike uh, a stroll or somebody walking or running, this rikud uh, implies someone who's who's lifting themselves up. Um, that it it's representative or symbolic of the fact that uh, that 
what Hasidim are trying to do is to uplift themselves above the earthiness of their lives to um, to um, express in a physical way the fact that they that they um, are reaching for higher spheres the um, amongst Hasidim they used to they used to say that in much the same way that the crest of a wave is magnificent as it reaches its uh, its crest, uh, that uh, every drop knows that it's going to fall again. But the, that the the reaching for the crest is a is an expression of of the lower waters reaching uh, and yearning for their initial lofty status, and, and that the the soul of man in, in dancing is uh, reaches for a, a higher experience. Um, this um, this uh, emphasis on unity, this emphasis on family, this emphasis on 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 joining together in a in a in an experience of souls fusing with one another was also based upon what. Um, what was very strongly emphasized in, in both in early and in later Chassidus as the, the Midas Hoanivus. Whereas it seemed that um, the, the former communities, the learned communities, had a certain aristocracy or an arrogance of learning. Um, Chassidus urged an aspaklaria of emes, a, a scope of truth. And within this unforgiving scope of truth, Chassidus said, you'll find two things. That you will find that when you look carefully at another Jew, that you will find something indescribably precious and holy, and something which is an expression of the divine that deserves to be loved and embraced and encouraged and supported in every possible way. So that the ability to respect another person is a product of this midas emes, this, this scope of truth. If you look at a Jew the way a Jew deserves to be seen, then you will see a child of the Almighty who deserves your genuine respect. And if you look at yourself under that same scope, you will find that as much as you've achieved, be it in learning, be it in davening, be it in, in acts of, of, of gemilos chasodim and loving kindness, whatever it is that you've done, doesn't begin to scratch the surface of what the human soul is capable of achieving. And when we put ourselves under that scope, then we are um, exposed to how much, how, how many more times we should be demanding of ourselves to, uh, to bring greater excellence and greater, greater purity of, of motive and thought and concentration to all of the things that we do. Such that the uh, humility that truth demands and the respect that it, it brings to others was, uh, was something which allowed people 
to destroy all the walls and all the, the distrust and all the barriers which formerly came between um, members of, of the Jewish community. And um, there was a, 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 a mida of a, a, a character of oneness which was characteristic of virtually all of the different Hasidic communities which um, which had a, a very uh, remarkable longevity even when many of the other more spectacular parts of, of the Hasidic movement had begun to wane the actus um, of the Hasidic community remained a very vibrant and, and powerful force where, where did you see an expression of that? what? where do you see an expression of that? where? of the fact that you just said that even when other things began to wane, that remained. In almost um, every every uh, Hasidus, the um, devotion that Hasidim would have to one another was uh, was very unique. And we can we'll talk about them in in, 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 in some of our future sessions. Um, I want to pass over very quickly uh, some some other facets which the uh, Baal Shem Tov introduced. There was, in uh, as as a as a result of the urging of the Baal Shem Kodesh, there was a renewed um, commitment to Aveda Bitahara of serving the Almighty with a. A, a greater concern about this dimension or this component called tahara. Tahara is a very difficult thing to translate because there is no physical counterpart for the concepts of tuma and tahara. They're usually spoken about and translated as pure and impure. It has nothing to do with pure and impure. They have to do with with states of of being, which um, are either restricted or expanded based upon uh, the um, the kinds of things that that people that people do the Baal Shem Tov urged upon his Hasidim that uh, as regularly as possible that before they begin their um, religious Expression, whether it was learning Torah, whether it was davening, whether it was the practice of any of any mitzvah, that like the Kohen Hagodol, before he would approach the service of Yom Kippur, the Kohen Hagodol, the high priest of Klal Yisrael, would enter the Holy of Holies on one day of the year on Yom Kippur, during the day of Yom Kippur, and before he did so, he would immerse himself in a mikvah. That was to prepare himself for this awesome experience of entering this little space in uh, on this planet where the Almighty had focused his presence. Um, the um, Baal Shem Tov 
and Hasidus uh, throughout the ages uh, emphasized that this uh, mikveh experience is uh, is a preparation and an orientation and a, a um, uh, affects um, a, um, a change in a person which makes the quality and the consequence of their service, their mitzvahs, their study of Torah, uh, just that many times more effective, um, allows that uh, that service to be just that much more meaningful. Um, and uh, it, it's characteristic of Hasidic communities, as it has been for um, um, two and a half centuries, even today, that uh, that virtually on any occasion of moment, and amongst many Hasidim, every day before the davening, that the day begins with an immersion in the mikvah. Um, uh, that in and of itself is, is, a, is a subject unto itself, but I, I, I don't want to spend any more more time on this right now. I, I just want to emphasize the fact that this this Aveda B'Tahara, this concept of um, immersion in mikvah, was uh, was something that was, um, was was very strongly underscored by Baal Shem Tov and um, and was one of the things which identified members of a Hasidic community the um, there's no question about the fact but and, and this is certainly true of the of the um, the scholars of the Hasidic community that the Baal Shem Tov um, further expanded and revealed the secrets of the Kabbalah made it much more accessible and made it much more a part of the ways in which uh, Hasidim did whatever they did. Um, virtually every mitzvah, virtually every aspect of their davening was touched by and affected by the teachings of the Kabbalah. And um, the, if we begin with the, the first, um, the, the first. Uh, public revelation of, of the Chachmas HaSaid in the the, uh, the manuscript of the Zohar uh, and the second such Hispashtus in the uh, the time of the Ariya Kodesh in the 16th century then um, the Baal Shem Tov really represented the, the, the third Gilui, the third um, expansion the third um what? Revelation of of Kabbalistic thought. Uh, I want to just give you a um, a very quick, a bird's eye sketch of uh, of um, the Baal Shem Tov when he appeared, when he was born, and uh, some um, biographical data. The Baal Shem Tov was born um, in uh, Tafnun Ches, which is what does that come to? That would be uh, in 
That's how it has. What? 1698. 1698, 1900, that's right. 1940. Wait, hang on. Let's see. Let's do this. Let's do the following. Tafshin was 1940, right? So Tafresh Samach was 1900. Um, that's right. So it'll be, it'll be 1698. So Boshanta was born in 1698. Uh, on Chai Yellow, 18 days in Elo. Uh, he was was uh, born to elderly parents. Uh, his father's name was uh, Rebeliezer, his mother's name was Sarah, and he was orphaned very early in his life and, and uh, kind of raised by the uh, community. He was always a somewhat um, secretive child. He, he ended up as a young man um, uh, kind of uh, overseeing Cheder children um, he, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, he was married very briefly and divorced, and um, and subsequently remarried the sister of Reb Gershon Kitava. Reb Gershon was one of the Chachmei Brod. Um, his father, Reb Avram, was one of the, I believe one of the Dayanim in that area, who. Uh, Despite the Baal Shem Tov's attempts to um, to keep his um, the uh, very exalted nature of, of who he was from everyone, and he did so very successfully, this Rabbi Avram um, discerned the greatness of this man, and um, he had daughter Sarah, who was herself a divorcee, and. Um, he um, asked the Baal Shem Tov if he would consider his daughter as, uh, as a wife the Baal Shem Tov agreed and they drew up a contract of uh, betrothal which was kept secret for a while when the Baal Shem Tov uh, was prepared to uh, to marry Sarah he uh, came to Reb Gershon with this um, betrothal contract because in the interim Rabbi Avram had, had died uh, Rabbi Gershon was, uh, was absolutely enraged by uh, by this um, what he perceived to be a, a peasant an unlearned um, and somewhat coarse individual tried in every which way to, to uh, break up the match um, the young woman was very steadfast in the fact that this this was her father's will, that this was what was to be done, and um, the Baal Shem Tov and uh, and Sarah got married and uh, went off to live someplace and uh, uh, where the Baal Shem Tov would be able to maintain his seclusion and his solitude. Um, he spent years and years in uh, in this solitude, and, um, supported by Sarah. And um, during this period of time, according to the history of Hasidus, came into possession of a, a very extensive uh, Kabbalistic manuscript, which was brought to his attention by. 
um, one of the the giants of the of the previous generation in the in the long chain of of uh, Kabbalah, Reb Adam Shemtov, who dispatched his son to turn these writings over to the Bashem Hakodesh. <coughs> And it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a magnificent story about how he found them and how um, um, the uh, Baal Shem um, was um, uh, be, uh, was at least to, to this young man uh, was, was revealed uh, by a series of incidents, ultimately the, this this young man became a, a disciple of the Baal Shem HaKodesh. And um, the, um, this, uh, this um, this wisdom was passed on into, into the hands of the Baal Shem HaKodesh. The Baal Shem Tov is also, uh, and this is again a, a, a not insignificant facet of, of his uh, uh, his being forced into the position in which which, which he came to occupy in, in Hasidic life. He was he had a very special um, emissary who was uh, sent to him to uh, teach him whatever he needed to know in order to fulfill this particular mission. And this was a prophet who lived in the time of, actually, who uh, was involved with the um, the splitting of the kingdom in the time of the son of King Solomon. There was a prophet called Achia Shilani. Achia Shilani was the was the prophet who anointed Yerava. And uh, as as you know, Yerava became the um, the king over the um, the ten tribes and uh, the kingdom from that point forward was a split kingdom. Achia Shilani became a personal rebbe, a personal mentor to the Bashema Kodesh, and uh, between the Ksavim of Ravodim Bashem and Achia Shilani, the Bashem Tov became the uh, beneficiary of the repository for a um, um, volume uh, and depth of wisdom which was unprecedented in in all of the centuries from the time of the Ariya Kaddish until the present time. Uh, it is said that the Baal Shem Tov struggled against this uh, Becoming a, a public figure, that this, that uh, he he was urged um, to uh, become this this very pivotal figure in history, to take on a public persona, and that he resisted for some six years before he actually was forced into uh, taking a public stance and becoming a. Um, <coughs> public and very controversial figure. And um, eventually the Baal Shem HaKadosh, I believe at the age of 36, um, 
emerged from seclusion uh, to gather about him uh, at first some uh, immediate disciples and ultimately the growing masses of of, uh, the Jewish communities of that time who found in him a very healing force and a restoration of all of these these factors that we've spoken about. Baal Shem Tov passed away at the age of 72 on um, the holiday of Shavuos in um, the year Tav Kuf Chav, which was um, 5,520. Um, so what does that come to? 1670. 1770. 1770. 1770. We passed away in 1770. Um, and we have no idea what he would have said about the American Declaration of Independence. We know. <laughs> well, that took place about six years later. <laughs> she predeceased him. Uh, the Vashem had numerous, very, very fascinating things in, in, in chapters in his history. There was a period of time in which he uh, sought to to visit Eretz Yisrael. And there's a whole literature surrounding this, this trip to, to Eretz Yisrael, which was, which was uh, never meant to be. He, uh, he got to Constantinople, took a, a ship, and the ship was, was driven mercilessly until such time as the Vashem Tov had to accept the fact that, uh, that uh, heaven would not allow him to enter the, the Holy Land. Hashem Tov had a son and a daughter. Um, he had a son, Reb Tzvi, who uh, for the first year succeeded him as the, the leader of the Hasidic world. Uh, Reb Tzvi was a very, very uh, strong disciple of, of his father and had the... the um, uh, the the support and the um, what word am I looking for? Respect. No, the um, the admiration. what? Admiration. Admiration. Charisma. Admiration. The, 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 you know the, the the loyalty of okay whatever. There's another word. Whatever. Of of the um, of his of his father's following. And the Shavuos, exactly one year after he had ascended to become the leader of the Hasidic community, Rutsvi was sitting at the head of the of, of uh, the Hasidim, and he announced that his father had appeared to him and had said to him, "Heaven has given the scepter to Reb Dov, who was the uh, became the Magid of." Rich. and at which point Kutzvi got up out of his chair removed the white tunic which was the, the mantle of, of uh, the leader of the city community placed it upon Rebdev uh, and sat down at the side and Rebdev got up to assume the, uh, the helm of the city community it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful um, uh, and, and very poignant um, expression of of how uh, what integrity these people had had. I mean, this was a very powerful position, but it's 
and was it was something that that uh, was exposed to that same an exemplary uh, scope of truth which which made up the lifeblood of, of the Hasidic movement his brother-in-law ever come to appreciate him what? his brother-in-law ever came to recognize him mm. his brother-in-law who had been such a uh, detractor eventually became a, a Hasid of his of his uh, brother-in-law and uh, at his brother-in-law's urging the Baal Shem Tov urged him to travel to Eretz Yisrael, and there's all kinds of uh, there's there's a correspondence between them, which is is of staggering, staggering proportions. Um, I I would like to just close with a, a story or two, which I think kind of capture some of the dimensions of what the Balshemta was all about. In the um, throughout the life of the Balshemto, the Hisnagdus, the opposition, was very formidable. Uh, following on the heels of the of all of the false messiahs and all of the corruption of the Kabbalistic texts, this emphasis which the Balshemto brought to Kabbalah and the fact that he that he drew about him such an ardent and intense following made all of the leaders of the European Jewish communities very suspicious that they were um, that they were looking at a, another another instance in which the uh, the uh, the faith of Claudius Roll would be shattered. So there was a, there was an, an enormous opposition. Um, the story is told that amongst his misnagdim, there was uh, amongst his opposers, there was a the rabbi of a community which uh, was somewhere along the lines which the Baal Shem Tov would frequent during his travels throughout the country. Um, on one occasion, this rabbi learned that the Baal Shem Tov was was going to um, be passing through, and uh, he felt the need to protect. His um, his community from this uh, pernicious influence, influence, which which he and uh, and his associates and colleagues and peers felt Balshemto represented, and he uh, he did a number of things. He immediately issued a decree in the community that if the Balshemto was to seek lodging anywhere in the community, that he was to be denied any lodging in the community. Uh, and secondly, he resolved that he would show his contempt for the Baal Shem Tov, for all of the community to see that as the carriage of the Baal Shem Tov would pass through the community, that he would throw stones at the carriage. That, that was an expression of contempt, which, as unbecoming as it was for a rabbi to do, would, would speak in, uh, in um, mega decibels of, of how dangerous a person the Baal Shem was to the well-being of the Jewish community. The day that the uh, Baal Shem Tov was to was to um, uh, make uh, his visit to this uh, to this town or this this community was the day in which the uh, this rabbi was uh, busy with all kinds of very complex halachic questions. 
And when the time came for the Baal Shem's carriage to pass through, the the rabbi uh, walked to the door and uh, somehow could not bring himself to, uh, to throw stones at the carriage of the Baal Shem Tov. He may have felt it was beneath his dignity. Um, he may have felt that uh, that perhaps it was too extreme a measure. Nobody's quite sure what his, what his reservations were, but he didn't do it. He returned to his studies, and um, there was a question, a very serious question, which needed to be answered very urgently. Uh, it was one that was not treated directly or explicitly by the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Laws, which demanded that he uh, that he needed to uh, to deal with the Talmudic precedents and uh, and um, interpret a decision which would be a legitimate extension of of other halachic premises. So he toiled laboriously on this problem. He called the 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 parties before him, and he issued his his finding. The uh, the psak, the finding was received. Uh, the party who had asked the question left, and the uh, the rabbi returned to his studies. Late in the night, the rabbi prepared to retire reflected upon the happenings of the day and uh, satisfied that uh, that things had gone well he tried to sleep but he couldn't sleep and he tossed and turned until finally he realized that his inability to sleep which was uncharacteristic uh, was somehow an invitation for him to re-examine the events of the day. And so, the first thing that he re-examined was his conclusion in this halachic question. And much to his, his, uh, his horror, he realized that the decision which he reached was one which involved a, um, an inference which he felt, upon review, was terribly bold on his part and did not have the requisite support to have issued such a finding and it was a lenient finding in this question and he was overwhelmed by the uh, the thought that he was machshil, that he had caused someone to act in in a way which may in fact have violated um, a fairly uh, s- severe and serious law of the Torah. So he hopped out of bed, summoned his his attendant, and said to him, "I want you to try to find so and so, and I want you to tell him that I need to see him immediately because I I have to uh, reverse my decision." It's the wee hours of the morning by now. The guy goes out and returns and says that it's too late. They, they've already acted upon it, and if in fact uh, this constituted a violation, then the violation is, is done. At which point the, the rabbi was overcome with remorse. 
was a he was a, a person who was a God fearing person. He was a very devout and, and uh, um, deeply committed, uh, observant individual. And the fact that he would be the source of the, the, the party who would have caused someone else to violate the Torah was more than he could bear. And he began to, to say to himself, if this, if, if I was, became a party to such a wrongdoing, then there must have been some previous wrongdoing which brought about this thing. In other words, this, this, this just doesn't appear spontaneously. I must have been guilty of some previous wrong, perhaps a lesser wrong, but something which, which then predisposed me to, to act in so reckless a manner. And uh, when he began to examine what other wrongdoing he may have been guilty of, he concluded that it could be nothing other than the fact that here was this dangerous person, someone who was a threat to the well-being of, of the entire Jewish people, and he should have thrown stones at the carriage to show everybody how contemptuous one needed to be of, of so dangerous a person. And he didn't do it. So, he said to himself, I have to do tshuva. I have to be penitent. So I've got to find out where he is, and i got to go throw some stones at him. So he says to his God, I want you to go out, even though it's in the middle of him, I want you to find out where this Baal Shem Tov is. Because I've got to do it. One can only speculate what the Gabbai was thinking about the rabbi at this, at this point. But he proceeded to go around waking up people of the, of the community to see if anyone had any idea where the Baal Shem Tov had finally found lodging because the community had in fact refused lodging to the Baal Shem Tov in, uh, in deference to the rabbi's decree. And so he discovered that the... Um, Baal Shem Tov had taken up residence in a, what was then an inn, um, a short distance outside of the community where the proprietor was perhaps unaware of the, the rabbi's decree and had given the Baal Shem Tov shelter. At which point, the rabbi got dressed and said to his gabbai, come, we have some important things to do. And the Gabbai and the Rabbi walked out and the Rabbi instructed the Gabbai to fill his pockets with stones. And the Rabbi and the Gabbai in the wee hours of the morning are busy filling their pockets with pebbles and stones. And when they they uh, had armed themselves adequately they walked towards the the um, inn where the Baal Shem Tov had found lodging. When they arrived there, mind you, it's in the middle of the night, they, um, upon entering the inn, they saw that the rooms which were occupied by the Baal Shem Tov were brightly lit by candles. They entered the room, and the Baal Shem Tov was just then washing his hands and reciting the benediction, Asher Yotzar, which is recited after uh, someone has uh, 
has just um, um, dealt with their 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 bodily functions and found out that uh, that the Almighty's um, the Almighty has has caused everything to work properly, and when the Bashem said a bracha, it wasn't just it wasn't said um, absent-mindedly. It was a bracha, and he was a flame. And the rabbi stood transfixed, unable to move by the sanctity of this image which appeared before his eyes. Bashemto finished recitation of the bracha and called the rabbi by name, despite the fact that they had never been introduced, and said to him, whatever his name was, I have uh, something that I would like to share with you. At which point the Baal Shem opened one of the the uh, Sfarim, a uh, manuscript of one of the Rishayim, and pointed to a um, paragraph in which the very question which this rabbi had dealt with was addressed by the uh, by this early source, and the conclusion was identical with the conclusion reached by this rabbi. The uh, the rabbi was so overcome with joy about the fact that he was that he had reached the the, the appropriate conclusion and that he had not been guilty of of um, bringing another Jew to violate a, a, a law of the Torah. That he was there. There was there was no level. There was just there was there were absolutely no limits to the gratitude which he felt. He embraced the Bashantov and said to him, Thank you, Rebbe, thank you so much. I appreciate what you did for me. And uh Bashemtov wished him well. The rabbi turned around and walked out. And as he began the trek back to to his home, they realized that their pockets were full of stones. And so the uh, the rabbi began to take the stones from his pocket as he was walking and tossing them as he walked. And uh, they'd walked a short distance, busy throwing these stones, and they hear they hear some noise behind. They turn around, and there's the Baal Shem Tov and the Baal Shem's Gabbai walking behind, picking up every stone that they had cast aside. And the rabbi, this he was totally mystified, and he runs back and says to, to the Baal he says to him, Rebbe, what are you doing? So the Baal said to him, My son, stones which were gathered with the fear of heaven do not deserve to be scattered in the dust amongst other common stones. That's the story. And it speaks to the, the, the fact that when a Jew touches even a pebble, a rock, a stone, and does so with, with the fear of heaven, 
that he does so out of the sincerity and out of the the genuine um, godliness of the soul of the Jew. It may look like a rock, it may feel like a rock, it may test out under a microscope like a rock, but it's not a rock and it's not a stone. Because once a Jew has touched it with the fear of heaven, he has transformed it. He has sanctified it. And it is now some some precious gem which the eyes of a Baal Shem Tov can behold and which certainly the Almighty can behold. The Baal Shem Tov was able to imbue an entire generation of simple folk and scholars alike with the understanding that our lives are full of a zillion pebbles, our day-to-day interactions. We make decisions every moment about what we say and, 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 and what we do and how we interact with others and how we're going to raise our children and how we're going to deal with our parents and how we're going to, to study and how we're going to die. We make a zillion decisions every day. Every moment we're making decisions. And some of them appear very pedestrian to us. Boshem Tov told us and taught his generation that every every Jew has this capacity to turn to turn dross into into gold, to take to take commonplace things and impart to them a majesty, to 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 draft them into another uh, uh, another sphere, and that. The, the magic of the Jewish soul was such that they could touch all kinds of things in their lives and turn little pebbles into diamonds. And who could fail to be moved or uplifted by the knowledge that there was that, that kind of magic, that kind of force, that kind of grandeur, that kind of majesty within themselves that they could turn rocks into diamonds?